ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salman Sheikh, the day school Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky in New York City, Anche Chesed, but on sabbatical, but still with us because Torah doesn't take a sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> Studying Torah doesn't take it. And neither does Parsha Talk. Parsha Talk doesn't take sabbaticals. Parshat Emor, which is an amazing Parsha this week. Emor, we are still one week behind Israel. I call it the the, the Jewish limp, Israel's one step, we're, you know, anyway. Emor deals with Kohanim, the priesthood. The first rules uh, are about relating to the dead, that the Kohanim have certain restrictions to their lives, specifically in the way they conduct themselves around the dead. Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, being our resident Kohen, could you reflect on this both professionally, personally, and in any way you would like? What does yeah. it mean to be a Kohen? Yeah, you know, um, first of all, it is tremendously, you know, a tremendously interesting topic uh, because of its anachronism. Um, the reason that a Kohen is supposed to not have any contact with the dead, and then there's other restrictions about uh, their their marital lives. Um, a regular Kohen is not supposed to marry a divorcee in the Kohen Gadol, is not supposed to, but can marry a, a widow. But the, the Kohen Gadol is supposed to not marry either a, a divorcee or a widow. Um, uh, There's supposed to be some sort of avatars or paragons of purity because they're, they're serving in the Beit HaMikdash. And they, they need to be like examples of, of the world as it is put together and, and orderly. And all of the, those things that are more complicated are disorderly. Um, the coin is, is also described that there's all kinds of physical imperfections that would disqualify a Kohen. Uh, I don't think, I think that those things typically s- sit very poorly with people nowadays. We're, we are accustomed nowadays to thinking, you know, that people, it's as the, as the John Legend song goes, you know, it's you, with your perfect imperfections. It's, it's our imperfections that are, that make us special and not, and not some sort of impossible standard of, of perfection. That's, that's like a trap. But I think that the Bible assumes that Kohanim have to be physically perfect, have to be ritually pure, so they can't come in contact with the dead. But here's, the, here's a cool exception. It's important, as emerges from the rabbi's reading of this first verse, um, speak to the Kohanim, do not impurify yourself for any dead body among your people. And the rabbis read that among your people, meaning that's, that's when there are families. But um, if there's some terrible circumstance in which uh, there's an abandoned corpse that doesn't have anybody to bury that person, that is just seen as the worst thing, the worst abjection to, to have a human body uh, putrefy in public, um, which is like going to be horrifying. 
Um, so a Kohen, even though they have this typical status, sometimes they find themselves in an emergency. Also, this is true, by the way, of a Nazarite. A Nazarite has made the, this, this vow to not have any contact with the dead. Uh, you know what? In an emergency, you got to drop everything and you have to deal yeah. with this. With I find this, I find this a tremendously, um, you know, ethically inspiring. There's all kinds of things that we don't want to do, right. but when in real emergency situations and somebody is all abandoned, even if it's a dead dead body, but you got to come through. And and I I, I so, take that. So in other words, powerful. the ritual life is is colliding with the ethical and the dignity, the preservation of the dignity of human being. As 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 understood in in the most basic terms, which is if you see a dead human being, you have to tend to it, right? Under normal circumstances, there are societies and there are individuals detached, you know, deployed for that. But in the extraordinary circumstance, this uh, obligation for human dignity outweighs your kohanim. Barry, I don't know if you want to kind of yeah, it's fascinating when Jeremy, when you were talking, it seems like there's an identification with purity with Torah and absolute life and that what we regard as impurity what the bible regards as impurity are situations where some element of death either is introduced or threatens and what i think that this partially explains why the kohen why has more restrictive rules when he comes into contact with death and it led me to think while you were talking about the maiden mitzvah this obligation to bury the dead which falls upon anyone who comes across a corpse, is what makes that different, I think, is that part of life on some level is also attending to the dead. That it's not a complete separation from death, as we sometimes think, but sometimes we have to attend to the dead in order to truly, truly live. And I just want to make one, one comment about um, the, the way we have phrased this I want to make one comment about like how it is that we talk about rules. Um, and, and I'm not going to, I'm just going to present two options and, uh, and see which sits better with you or whatever. Is it that the rule is that the Kohen Gadol or the Kohanim uh, don't have any contact with dead bodies, but in emergency situations, the rules lapse? Or is it that the rule of how the Kohen avoids um, uh, contact with the dead um, uh, the the rule uh, includes the exception for for dealing with a mate mitzvah. In other words, what I'm asking, what I'm saying is, the way we look at it, do we end up saying, okay, these are the rules we try to follow, but something sometimes something more important happens and the rules are set aside, or do we say that the way halacha works is it it includes its own um, limitations? It like is it is it forbidden to drive a car on Shabbos? Yes. Is it forbidden to drive an ambulance on Shabbos? No. Um, is that that the rules are superseded or is the rule itself include a life-saving sure, provision? Right. And, and I guess it's, you know, you could say we suspend the rules for the sake of life or we, the, the rule is you've got to save a life on yeah. Shabbos. Well, the, the, well I, I think what it comes down to is a famous phrase, that yeah. you have to choose life. That what we sometimes lose sight of in our daily lives is that all of these rules are dedicated to increasing life and the life force of the universe. I remember hearing Rabbi Irving Greenberg talk once at a cloud conference, and his basic position was that life is on the increase in the universe, and that 
if I'm not misquoting him, ultimately the universe will become totally enlivened, which is a beautiful image to think about. I remember when I was a physics student that what was on the increase was entropy, you know, the slide into chaos. And Rabbi Greenberg's image was the direct opposite of that. And let's face it, a lot more hopeful than this idea that the end of the universe is complete dissolution. I'd much rather believe like Rabbi Greenberg. And I think that it helps us address your point is that these exceptions are not really exceptions, but they're just a different way of framing the emphasis on life. Well, okay. So, and the Kohanim are, are entrusted with uh, maintaining that sense of order in, in the, in their local universe, in their, you know, in the community and, and in the, in the nation, uh, you know, following on the theme of Kiddoshim, they are Kiddoshim Yihiyu. It's not Kiddoshim Tihiyu. You shall be, it's they shall be holy. And, and they, they represent the ordering principle within the community. They, they, they stand for all the things that are going to bring that community towards more enlightenment. One more point I, I want to say is that, you know, we make a lot of, um, interesting uh, you know theories about the development of Judaism within the crucible of Egypt which is you know a, a society a civilization dedicated to a religion of the dead and how Judaism you know biblical Israel turns you know 180 degrees from that it, it formed in the or juxtaposed or next adjacent to a society that that worships the dead or is involved with the dead whose priests are so connected to the rites of the dead here you have a priesthood that's dedicated to to life. It it it's it's never um so, uh, you know it's an idea that always I think inspires uh, you know, imagination. Can I, can I say a word, a word about, one more thing about Kohen? You know we we Kihuna, we um I, I feel like generally speaking, American Jewish life certainly in in the way you know our conservative communities practice it. Uh, pushes up against hierarchy. We don't like hierarchy too much. Um, you know, we, we want we want um, people to have equal access and 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 like in principle, uh, a hereditary priesthood is not so it's not so democratic. It's not. It's pretty hierarchical. You're just born a certain way, and and so I'm not crazy about the various manifestations of of Kohanic authority and everything. And you know, uh, in my synagogue, we don't do this. Many, many other synagogues, of course, still do on the, on the Shalush uh, Regalim and, and the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. They have the, the priestly blessing. We do it. In, in Israel, you, in Israel you, you have it every day. And I love going to synagogue in Israel and reciting the priestly blessing. You, uh, it's, it's got a mystical kind of a magical tone. The, the Kohanim are up there. With the talitot over their heads and their hands are in the the special posture of blessing, and I must say that the experience of it, especially when I'm blessed to be able to do it with my with my kids, uh, when I've done it here in the United States, I I have my girls too, but of course in an Orthodox synagogue in Israel, it's just it's me and my boys. Um, it is it is amazing. It is a feeling that you are a channel for blessing. It is a feeling that you have. Uh, beneficence and generosity flowing through you as you look out at the community who themselves have the tally tote over their heads 
and say, May God take care of you and bless you and smile upon you and radiate light upon you and grant you peace. I just, well, I feel like when I do that at the beginning of a day, I'm getting a pill of generosity, beneficence, kindness, goodwill, and the Hayebracha, baby, be a blessing. I feel, I feel like the blessing is sent, sent, is sent through my hands. We, we, the two of us have Kohen envy. Go ahead, Baron. So I just wanted to add a point. In Sefer Shmo, we're called upon to be a Mamlachet Kohenim, a kingdom yeah. of priests. And I think that in light of our conversation, what we can say is that this kingdom of priests doesn't mean that each of us is a priest, but that we live in the ambiance of the priesthood. Nice. And what I like about the priesthood is that we recognize in other spheres of life that people are different. Some people are gifted athletes. Some people have a gift for music, for writing, whatever it is. And we accept that. We don't think that because someone is a much better athlete than us, that we're somehow deficient or that there's something wrong with the athlete. But we learn how to rejoice in other people's um, accomplishments and endowments from which ultimately we think uh, come from God. And I think part of what makes a priesthood beautiful, even in a democratic age, is it gives us a way to recognize that in our communities of, in our kingdom of priests, we're not all the same, but in fact, we embrace those differences. And those differences are sometimes physical and sometimes they're metaphysical, but they're all important to keep. So in a way, and without without going too much on the limb, this 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 may help us understand the phenomenon of anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism is really you know I, mean, I joked about you know envy and it's jealousy. It's rooted in that that inability to accept difference and inability to accept the uniqueness and the role. Rather than saying you know wow the the Jewish people have this you know long relationship and special history and 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 are a source to be admired and and even emulated or or certainly um to adapt to to a posture of of affection um the opposite has been true throughout history and and so you know within within the jewish people we have the opportunity to display that we can you know uh, adore and admire our koanim because of the responsibilities that are uh, placed upon them uh, and um, and truly be better off for that. I always like to return, you know, the for me the the the, the first words to God to Abraham, you will be a blessing, right? I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, right? So so to admire those who have the capacity for bringing blessing into the world makes you blessed. It brings blessing to you, right? And one of the blessings of the Jewish people is the Jewish calendar, which we should turn to now for the second half of our talk, which is it starts in 20, chapter 23 of um, Leviticus, the Parsha Emor. Um, and it may be still familiar to us because we read some of these passages uh, not too long ago. Um, the passage is the introduction to the, t the, the calendar, basically, the, the festivals. The bear el bene Israel, speak to the children of Israel. Vamarta alehem moade Adonai. These, this is my fixed times, my moadim. It actually moade Adonai. It just says holidays. Asher tikruotamikrai kodesh that you declare them as holy days or as uh, days, um, sacred occasions. Hey moadai. 
So I want to say, I want to really parse that, that verse a little bit for you, offer the following, which is that there are, there's something called Moadei Adonai, and there's something called Moadei Adam, okay? And that, and that a calendar is very much um, a composite, it's, a calendar is a cultural artifact, a calendar is a cultural creation. In antiquity, I guess, calendars were made by, by human beings, basically, or calendars were made in response to the narrative of the gods, right? So, you know, even, and we have vestiges of that today because the, the, the days of the week are named for different gods, uh, Sunday, or different planets, and Saturday. Saturday, yeah. Right, Mercredi in French for Wednesday, right? Lundi is the Monday, moon, right, etc. So, so my, 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 the, the proposition that I'd like you to argue or just to, you know, think about is, what is it about the calendar? The calendar is, is such an important tool of our life. I don't think any of us could, could live a day without the, uh, the necessity of consulting a calendar in some ways. And, and how do you relate to the calendar? And what does the sacred calendar of Israel tell us uh, in, its, as a, in, its, in theology or in story? Barry. So a, a very nice question, Elliot, I must say. Um, I, I think that the calendar teaches us about the responsibility of the partnership between God and human beings, that both are essential elements. And one of the things I like to teach my ninth grade kids in rabbinics is that most of the units of time that we have are based on astronomical phenomena, the day, the month, and the year. The one thing that is not based on an astronomical phenomenon, but is almost universally observed, is the week. And a seven-day week is not part of the fabric of the universe, although that's what we think of as Jews, but there's no way that you would know that it is Shabbat if you did not know when the previous Shabbat was, or that today was Friday, which is not true of the passage of the other times. And it's interesting that in our list of calendars, in our calendrical list here in Bayikra Havkemo, we begin with Shabbat, exactly, which is yeah. not a Moed, which right. is, you know, the scholars, you know, take note of that. Um, and then it goes on to what we call the historical holidays, so, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And I, what I wanted to point out is that all of these holidays have a basis in agriculture, which is not fixed, right? Most harvest holidays happen after, right after the harvest, and the harvest comes at a slightly different time every year. But now what we have in Vayikra is a complete fixing of the holidays, except for Shavuot, um, that Pesach sacrifice is going to be offered on the evening of the 14th of Nisan, and the holiday of Matzot is going to begin on the 15th. Um, Rosh Hashanah is going to take place on the 1st of uh, Tishrei, Yom Kippur on the 10th, Sukkot on the 15th. And those are fixed. And in the Mishnah, this is elaborated on. There's a wonderful story about Rabbi Joshua and Rabban Gamliel, where Rabbi Joshua is consoled by Rabbi Akiva, who tells him that the holidays are whenever the Jews and their court says that they are. It's not based on an absolute datum that um, the moon actually was, the new moon was actually seen. But whatever the court says, the new moon is seen. That's when it, it begins.
And so it requires a human being to declare the calendar. So I want I just want to react to, to the, the, the comment about Shabbat, because um, in, in, in the Parsha here, the only um, day of, of uh, Moed, which is not Moed, but the only, the only sacred day which is not declared, right? Asher tikrotamikra you will declare them, hey Moadai, they are my times. And then it goes, Sheshit yamim te'asem alacha, six days you will do, or work shall be done over Yom Shavi'i, and seventh day, Shabbat Shabbaton Mikra Kodesh, a day of complete rest. Work, all work shall not be done. Shabbat Hiladonai, Sabbath to God, everywhere. It, you don't need to declare it. I think that's, I'm dovetailing with what you said. Shabbat transcends the declaration of a court. Shabbat happens with or without the court. I, I studied this this week with, with my class, and there's a, the lovely sugya about what, what happens when you forget. What happens when you forget? You're walking in the, you're you're lost walking in the desert, away, or you're in the desert, yeah. and you forgot that it's Shabbat. When do you make Shabbat? It's such a great question. And so the answer, the halachic answer, where one says you count from the time you remember and then make the seventh day Shabbat. The other one is you make the day that you remember Shabbat and then count after that. And one to recall creation and one to recall Adam Rishon and the halacha follows creation. That is, the minute you remember, that's your day one. Such a fascinating, beautiful idea, which is exactly as you said, Barry, that, that the seven-day rhythm is fundamental to the universe, and that even if you forget it, it's fundamental to human civilization, that to humanity, to my humanity, never mind my Jewishness, and that I have to maintain a seven-day rhythm to be in, to be, to synchronize myself or attempt to synchronize myself with with uh, both society and the universe. But, uh, Jeremy, you have some. Oh, two two things. First of all, uh, our our listeners may, maybe intuited this thing that we're saying now about the difference between the the kind of absolute rhythm of Shabbat and and the socially conventional rhythm of the holidays that are that are human human defined in the blessings that we say in the Amidah or in Kiddush on the holidays. It's Mikdash Hashabbat. Or Mikadesh Yisrael Vehazmanim, that God sanctifies the Shabbat on God's own calendar, or Mikadesh Yisrael Vehazmanim, God sanctifies the people with a system, and then they sanctify the the, the 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 local calendar. And so, therefore, you have this: if it's Shabbos and Yom Tov, it's Mikadesh Shabbat Yisrael Vehazmanim. So we have this literal liter, liturgy encoding of this idea that we're talking about now. I um. I'm I'm feeling a little uh, uh, like Rabbi Hoshua in the story that Barry was talking about. I'm feeling a little bit of frustration with uh, with the the tradition's answer, or, or, or you know, Rabban Gamliel in that story. After he forces Rabbi Hoshua to violate the Yom Kippur that he thinks would be based on his 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 Red obviously Red. correct reading of the astronomical calendar, he's clearly right. Um, Rabban Gamliel gets the last word, and, and he says, you know, you are my master and my student. You're my student with respect to accepting my authority because I'm the boss. And you are a master in wisdom because you were right. You're right about the issue. And I'm finding myself feeling uh, frustrated with, uh, with a purely conventional, the truth is whatever the authority says the truth is, um, you know, implication. I I want 
religion, I certainly recognize that lots and lots and lots of stuff we say in religion is, is conventional. It's by agreement. Uh, there are plenty of philosophers like the late Richard Rorty who thought that anything was true or false based on what people generally agreed to, that there wasn't some external standard. I find that absurd. And I find, I find, uh, I want there to be some external yardsticks that are not merely whatever the ones that we come up with, but it's, it's a, it's a, I guess, dialectical tension in Judaism of, of what's the world out there and what's the culture in here and how do those two things hook onto each other? I want to offer a defense of Roban Gamliel. I just taught this the other day. And what occurs to me is that Roban Gamliel perhaps gets a bad rap in the story because He's not necessarily dismissing the fact. He's accepting the testimony of the witnesses that came. And we were talking before the show how the whole idea of witnesses coming to Jerusalem to announce that they have seen the new moon is a little bit odd because you would think that there are plenty of people in Jerusalem who could have seen the new moon just as easily as the people are coming to testify. And the Mishnah indicates that perhaps these witnesses are coming are not uh, among the educated classes. But what Rabban Gamliel is saying is they're part of our community, and so what they testify becomes the law. It's not us who actually know better, and I agree with you, Rabbi Joshua, that we know better, but that these witnesses who come are part of our community, and we have to show them respect. It's really a part, I think, of inclusion, and perhaps Rabbi Joshua is a bit of an elitist. We know he comes across that way in the story of Tenor Achnai. And that while well, Rabban Gamliel, who is an elitist in other stories, but not here, I think, is trying to suggest that our model for community is to be more inclusive rather than less inclusive. Well, maybe what this is trying to suggest and maybe underpinning all of this is, is not only questions of you know when, it's, it's questions of authority, you know, and, and, and prevention of anarchy, but also to, to say, how are we going to stay one community? We need one, we need one calendar. We need one, one centralized calendar. In fact, the history of the Jewish calendar moves into the direction such that we don't have to rely on witnesses anymore. We have all the astronomical calculations. We know that a molad, the birth of a new moon, happens every 29 days and so many hours and and so many seconds you know and then you simply add it from you know one to the next and that certain months get doubled up and you know with with uh, with two rosh chodesh days and certain months are not and and that there are certain conventions all of that you know became part of the calendar um and that the calendar you know shapes your identity the calendar you know especially especially today because we live in a world in which we are operating at least under two calendars as Jews. I mean, today, you know, is a, is a calendar day. It's we're recording this on May the 11th. It's the 10th of ER, right? So we're, we're always bifurcated as Jews. We have our lives under certain cycles. Israel, right? We we are Parshat Emor this week. Israel is already our, at, at Bihar. Um, and we are, you know, in the Omer period. And so, you know, but we're also in this pre-memorial day period. We live a very kind of schizophrenic life. And the calendar is a perfect illustration of that. And, the, you know, we, we all tell our birthdays on the secular calendar. 
but we don't realize to what extent we, you know that has absorbed us. I'm just I'm mentioning this because I, I've been studying and reading this book about the Holocaust Jewish calendars, and and I shared some of it with with a, a class this week, and, and saying how important it was, how important it was in a world that was completely chaotic for for Jews who were under so much persecution and, and, and pain of death to try and remember what day it was. And there's lots of heroic stories about, you know, finding materials and writing and disseminating calendars and how important it was for people to know what day was Shabbat, what day was Rosh Chodesh. I mean, there's a heroic story of someone saying, you know, today you say V'tain Talamatar, right? <laughs> you know, like it's, you know, it's, it's funny. It's funny that you, that you pointed out the birthday thing. So as we're recording this, today happens to be Yedidia's birthday on the on the Hebrew calendar. I, I just know because um, it's 25th of Omer and and his his bris was on Lagba Omer. And uh, but we of course celebrate his birthday on the English on the secular calendar. And and you know, of course I'm a synagogue rabbi, so it happens all the time right. that we tell somebody such and such is the yard site, and they tell me, well, I observe the the secular date. And and I'm gonna, you know, whatever. I, I encourage people to do what work, what works for them. It doesn't exactly sit right with me when that happens. Like I said, no, you're like observe observe the Hebrew calendar date. But I don't celebrate my birthday on my Hebrew calendar. I I mark my birthday, or I think of my, my birthday or my family, my kids' birthdays on the secular date. How how do those two things go together? Why is one, you know, why is one seem realer and the other seems seems celebrate you know, two birthdays. I could do that, you know. I, I, I just another illustration of the point that I was making about the 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 quote unquote reality based calendar or the conventional based calendar. Um, I'm not in favor of getting rid of second day Yom Tov because I think we've done enough, you know, um, diminution of religious practice. I don't I don't think that's necessarily wise. But the question that people always say. We don't need a Yom Tov Sheni Shagaluyot. We don't need a second day of Yom Tov in the diaspora because we know when the real Rosh Chodesh is. And that's a question that emerges only if you have a sense that there's, a, there's an astronomical reality that is the defining feature. If you say that it is a kind of a conventional thing, then the second day Yom Tov makes sense. And this year I had a one day Yom Tov in Pesach. Uh, Kind of nice, actually. Well, we, follow the science. We, we don't follow the science. We don't follow the science. Just put on your mask and, and take some uh, <laughs> invermectin or whatever it's called. Great. Hydroxychloroquine. Okay. Well, we don't have time to discuss the person who curses God. Sorry. Maybe it's better. Sorry. But he, he, actually, his name is mentioned, isn't it? Uh, he's the son of... His, his, is, what is his name? Ben Ben He's not even named. Right? Could you get the Bible quiz contest winner? But you, you, you give us the midrash, right? Who is who is the the Ishmitri? Who is his father? You you told us this I midrash. Remember, I, you know, I talked about this last year, I think, which was he's. he's He's the guy, what is it? He's the, he's, the, he's the guy who Moshe killed. He's the guy who Moshe killed. It all goes back to Moshe. Moshe's to blame for everything. My God. Okay. But just, you know what, take, take a minute, because this little event tells us something about, it gives us an insight about Moses. Moses doesn't know what to do with him. So talk about so that. This is one of the cases in the Torah where 
something happens in the community and people approach Moses wondering what to do. And Moses' first response is, I don't know. Let me go ask God. And our image, of course, and at least for me since I was a little kid, is that Moses went up to Mount Sinai to find out everything that God needed to tell him. And then you open the Torah and you realize there are plenty of things that God left out for some reason. Sure. And one of the curiosities here is that the Torah, from one point of view, is mostly law. There is a good chunk of narrative as well. But all the case law are the cases where Moses didn't know what to do. Yeah. It's not a case where they said something happened. Oh, yeah, we look in smoke. This is what we do. We do it and we move on. It's only these cases where Moses doesn't know. And one of the things that we often forget is that this is a great message for us because we live our lives and we never always know what to do. And a lot of times we're befuddled. Sometimes we think less of ourselves for not knowing. But I think when these moments come, we have to remind ourselves that we are the descendants of Moshe who also didn't know. And sometimes it would behoove us to find out how we can ask God. So just as Moses was humble and didn't know, we should also be. And just as the study of Torah leads us to the discovery, so too we are thankful of having this uh, opportunity to study together, to share our Torah with everyone, and to share the joy of these discoveries with everyone. We want to wish everyone a beautiful Shabbat. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you next Shabbat week. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.